0: You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor
1: to the Counter Extremism Project and former European Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to the Fighting Terror podcast. For today's episode, I'm honoured to be joined by Mr. Radek Sikorski. Radek is a Polish MEP and a member of the European People's Party group in the European Parliament. He currently serves on the Committee on Foreign Affairs, the Special Committee on Artificial Intelligence and Subcommittee on Security and Defence. In addition, he also chairs the delegation for relations with the United States. Radek is currently a senior fellow at the Center for European Studies, Harvard University, and previously he served as Poland's Minister of Defence between 2005 and 2007, and then as Poland's Minister for Foreign Affairs between 2007 and 2014. Radek Sikorski, it's a it's a real pleasure to to have you join me on the podcast today. I think everybody will be aware of your you know your. Prominent positions in the Polish government, foreign minister, defense minister, etc. But perhaps people may not be so familiar with the fact that you started out as a war correspondent and you spent I think, a period from 1986 to 1989 covering uh, Afghanistan and Angola. Uh, So I guess that gives you a particular perspective on what's been happening uh, in Afghanistan over recent months in particular. Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and maybe a little bit about your your, uh, covering the war in Afghanistan in the past.
1: Yes, I went to Afghanistan for the first time in 1986, Uh, saw some ambushes um, uh, made by the guerrillas against the then Soviet occupying forces, Uh, spent six weeks in Tora Bora, which subsequently, years later, became bin Laden's hideaway, at that time it was a Mujahideen base. And I saw the delivery there of Stinger missiles, which were crucial to uh, deciding the um, uh, outcome of the uh, of the war and the Soviet withdrawal. I then made a trip to uh, a, a city by the Iranian and Soviet borders called Herat and wrote a book about it. It's an, it's an ancient capital of the Timurid Empire with some fine uh, antiquities, which unfortunately got, got damaged in the war. And then in 1989, in February, I watched the last Soviet tanks withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, I then visited Afghanistan uh, every couple of years uh, when it was being destroyed by the civil war. And, and then uh, when uh, we were trying to uh, stabilize it, I thought that our Western operation, in Afghanistan, was initially uh, correct. Uh, Let's remember that uh, the order to attack our ally, the United States, was issued in Afghanistan. And we gave the Taliban authorities at the time the option, give us bin Laden or else. They chose not to give up bin Laden and the country was very successfully taken over, and perhaps it was too easy, and then uh, all attention shifted to Iraq.
0: Yeah. I mean, what, one of the criticisms you certainly hear it from certain CIA uh, operatives uh, and others is that perhaps you know the job was not finished and uh, the job was not complete in Afghanistan. It was relatively successful after nine eleven um in the initial months in terms of hunting down and capturing you know a huge number of very significant uh, Al Qaeda leaders, but but perhaps you know, the focus shifted too quickly to Iraq and, and took the pressure off the Taliban. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I would. I would also say that our operation against the Soviets in Afghanistan and then the subsequent operation against the Taliban should be studied as examples to follow. This is how it should be done. Namely, you are using local people, uh, helping them with critical uh, technology or, or, or resources to do what they want to do anyway. The Mujahideen were fighting the Soviets anyway. We just helped them. Uh, most of the people of, of Afghanistan have, had had it with the Taliban. We just helped them. And so with, a, with minimal resources and minimal loss of life on our side, we achieved our political ends. Mm-hmm. And let's remember that our ends uh, were and should have remained very limited Unlike the Soviets, we didn't want Afghanistan for ourselves. We just wanted Afghanistan to cease to be a source of terrorism, drugs, and refugees. And we then, uh, I think, went off message. We broadened the mission uh, to turn Afghanistan into an, a Central Asian Switzerland, which was uh, unachievable. You know. Afghanistan is a very poor country, but it doesn't mean that it's simple. It's unbelievably complex politically. It's really a federation of valleys. And if you help one valley, the next valley is automatically your enemy. And so the political job should have been left to the Afghans. And, you know, we built these huge NATO bases on the outskirts of major cities uh, at huge expense. And I mean billions of dollars. And they mainly served to protect themselves. When I spoke to uh, my former comrades from, from the jihad, they, they said, you know, we could have sorted out those al-Qaeda boys. We know which families they come from. We know where they are for a fraction of the money. You just help us to do, you know, we don't want them in our country either. Because the basic truth is that the Afghans love their country more than, than we do that the Afghans were willing to die to uh, protect their country, and we were not, uh, quite understandably. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in building that ring road that is the the economic and political spine of Afghanistan, you know, mazar sharif Salang Tunnel, Bagram, Kabul, Ghazni, Kandahar, Herat, we spent ten times the resources that would norm- that that such a road would no- normally cost because we brought in foreign companies who needed full protection. So um, I felt that uh, we, our presence should have been much more narrow. For example, just one base, Bagram, which is a kind of key base that that controls the the flow of everything between North and South of Afghanistan. And we could have kept it forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the United States has military presence uh, in uh, over a hundred countries of the world. Why should Afghanistan be among those where it's at zero after 20 years of, you know, relatively large presence?
0: Yeah, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, there there is certainly a lot of scratching of heads as to how we have arrived at at this at this point and um, how it has come to this.
1: And um, let us remember that the Afghan government and our forces were not defeated militarily because we started con- uh, negotiations with the Taliban and because we withdrew, Afghans decided that the Taliban are the next government. And who wants to fight and die for a government that is being abandoned by its allies? So it was a political collapse because of our signaling.
0: I'm assuming uh, on that basis that that you uh, were not in agreement with um, former President Trump's decision to engage at that time with the Taliban. But equally, I mean, I suppose President Biden had a choice, had a choice to uh, perhaps be a little bit smarter in terms of how he uh, played this out. But his announcement in the spring really made it inevitable. And I think from what you're saying, um, you know, ultimately, I guess part of it was was a, a self-preservation decision on the part of um, different tribal leaders, people involved in uh, government, people involved in security forces in Afghanistan, where they were basically faced with one choice. And that choice was to pivot, uh, to, to start to work with and anticipate the arrival of the Taliban in Kabul.
1: Look, I understand why the the American people are tired of forever wars. And I understand why American politicians need to respond to uh, what their electorate wants. But leadership is also about making arguments and persuading people to change their mind. And I also understand why it may have looked like, well, If we are going to leave, then let's have a ceasefire with the Taliban and then we can leave in a more orderly way. But I think the decision to leave was completely... Was probably a mistake. Mm-hmm. Afghan leaders themselves told me, uh, Afghan parliamentarians, that Bagram, on which, as I say, billions were spent, had actually a friendly environment of friendly villages, mm-hmm. uh, clear fields of fire, uh, fortifications, state of the art monitoring and, and electronics and so on. And it could have been kept and it would have if if it was there then you know non non taliban afghans would have had the reassurance that that we are still with them that uh, the taliban don't have total control and it would have been a kind of insurance policy against bad behavior by the taliban and it um, and it would have uh, give us the intelligence assets uh, and the ability to strike uh, al-Qaeda targets, which are there. You know, the, the, the civil war hasn't ended. Uh, the uh, ISIS Khorasan is still there and is now fighting the, uh, the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And now, our, you know, US drones are, what, 1,200 miles away mm-hmm. and without any um, human in place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to send a drone, it's another to, to know who to hit. And so, you know, I... <laughs> I really feel for a generation of Afghan women who to whom we gave the impression Mm -hmm. that uh, they can develop in security and who are now being taken back to the Middle Ages. Yeah, Uh, this is this. I, I, I feel really bad about that.
0: Absolutely agreed. Um, on your point about maintaining um, a limited presence, so, uh, many US military have have suggested that a figure of two and a half thousand troops. If two and a half thousand troops had had been maintained, that that was sort of the magic number. Do you agree with that, or do you think that would have been realistic given the sort of the, the surge in uh, in uh, support and and uh, capacity for the t- Taliban?
1: two and a half thousand American troops mm-hmm. and I think we Europeans uh, would have uh, rallied around with perhaps the same number okay. uh, I, I think that might have um, been enough to keep Bagram and perhaps even the Kabul airport mm-hmm. and then we wouldn't have seen those horrific scenes of people wanting to uh, leave on or, or, or literally hanging on to, to planes uh, because they would have known that the, that it could have been done over months and years and, and uh, you know the the British, as I'm sure you noticed, were, were also shocked by the lack of tactical uh, collaboration on the ground.
0: Absolutely. And in terms of, you know, so fast forwarding to where we are now and the the many deliberations that occurred within the European Union, within the institutions, you're um, a serving member of the European Parliament, member of the Foreign, foreign Affairs Committee, justice ministers, uh, interior ministers have all discussed the fallout. It seems, I mean, The the EU has very much focused on its humanitarian and human rights response. Um, uh, There's been a pledge of one billion euro in aid. uh, And I suppose that inevitably begs the question, you know, how will that aid be distributed and How will that shape the interaction between the EU and the Taliban Um, and how will those funds be protected and how does the EU ensure that they reach the correct um, targets in Afghanistan?
1: Uh, this is not a theoretical issue for us, uh, particularly here in Poland, actually, but a practical one. We now have a crisis on the polish belarusian border. Uh, Mr. Lukashenko is uh, running an operation to bring uh, Middle Eastern uh, uh, refugees and try to push them over the Polish border into the EU, into the Schengen area. Uh, And uh, Iraqis have been um, the biggest uh, uh, nationality represented, but Afghans are second. Uh, We've, of course, uh, helped our Afghans to come to Poland, but, but these are people who are victims of people smugglers. And we had a debate uh, two weeks ago in uh, Strasbourg on this, and I I endorsed the uh, high representative's view that he needs to keep in touch with the Taliban uh, because we recognize countries, not governments, and you need to have a conversation with whoever is in charge. Uh, but the question is not whether we... Assign the money to the Taliban, to to Afghanistan and distribute them uh, with Taliban's uh, forbearance. The question is whether there's not going to be a complete collapse of law and order in Afghanistan. I mean, there's been a a freezing up of the banking system already. I read reports uh, about what it's like to be a an educated Afghan official trying to run, you know, the sewage system, the electricity system, the the uh, uh, the, 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 the various cellular and networks, being ordered about by illiterate village boys. This is what we're dealing with. You know, you you have at the very top of the Taliban government, you have the old guard essentially from 20 years ago, who may have learned a thing or two uh, while in exile in in Bahrain, and a few of them even speak English. But just under them, you have these village commanders who spent 20 years in the caves. And Afghanistan is not what it used to be when I traveled there 30 years ago. Kabul is now a metropolis of 5 million people and they have no idea how to run a modern city. So they may uh, cause a huge humanitarian um, uh, crisis simply through ignorance, brutality and ignorance.
0: Yeah, I mean, after 20 years of investment in uh, the education system and in obviously training and preparing uh, Afghan citizens to, to, to deliver services for their people, I mean, this is really worrying. How, I mean, how do you see the international community, including the European Union, Uh, dealing with thats I mean, is it possible with uh, virtually no presence now on the ground in Afghanistan? I mean, is there a way to to forge some sort of relationship with the Taliban?
1: I thought it's symbolic that the U.S. um, closed down its embassy, which Mm -hmm. it didn't need to do, Mm -hmm. and that the Taliban are now uh, making trips to Beijing and to Moscow. Uh, I think that was deliberate on the part of the United States to say, all right, you didn't like us, uh, your problem now. And so uh, this makes some sense. You know, Afghanistan borders on China and borders on the former Soviet Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, those countries have arguably a bigger stake in the uh, stability of Afghanistan than we do. And we've we spent 20 years protecting their, their underbelly. So yes, we will do what we can, but they have a bigger responsibility.
0: But I mean, isn't the risk with that responsibility that, you know, that the the, the vacuum, the power vacuum is is filled by China and Russia, but um, not necessarily for altruistic reasons. I mean, you know. Is there an interest for Russia, China, uh, and others, and thinking of Iran, to you know support a new Taliban regime at, while simultaneously turning a blind eye to um, the resurgence of Al Qaeda and indeed other potentially other extremist groups in Afghanistan?
1: Well, um, the U.S. presence uh, uh, and the support for the former government meant that. Uh, we were able to to hit uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates whenever they established a physical presence on the ground. This will now be harder. And let's also have no illusions about the nature of the Taliban regime. They did not fight us for 20 years in order now to protect liberal values. Mm. These are uh, extreme religious fanatics who, who believe in their retrograde ide- ideology. I mean, it, it's... I think not as bad as twenty years ago in that women are at least allowed to work in some places, and g- girls are allowed to attend some schools. I don't know about universities. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know exotic punishments are, are coming back, and uh, and revenge killings are also a fact. I mean, let's let's be clear that a, a night of barbarism is descending on Afghanistan and there's not much we can do about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've painted a very bleak picture in terms of and a very, a very logical picture in terms of the potential collapse of basic service provision and ultimately law and order in the country. And I guess inevitably, when when we see that type of catastrophe in any country, migration becomes uh, an ever greater factor. And, uh, you know, certainly I think when you look at uh, how Europe um, was impacted by the migration flow from Syria uh, from 2015 onwards. And um, I think you've just mentioned what's happening with Lukashenko uh, on the Polish border, which is obviously very deliberate and very strategic. I mean, are we bracing ourselves in Europe for a massive surge in migration from Afghanistan, in particular, and from the region more broadly? And is the EU prepared for that? What What can and should we, we, do? Are not,
1: uh, we are not. We are not either bracing ourselves or prepared, but we should because i my, my nightmare scenario is that the taliban either by design or by incompetence do what the khmer rouge did in uh, in cambodia when they took power if you remember they emptied the capital because that the kind of uh, extreme version of communism that they wanted to impose uh, was rural and it was difficult to do in a, in a big city. And we have something similar here. The, 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 the Taliban are the product of rural um, areas in Pashtun, uh, dominated south of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so, um, ideologically speaking, uh, you know, when cities are empty... Uh, You know, people have to go back to their villages and that's where the the Taliban uh, fantasy of going back to the seventh century way of life um, uh, may operate. And and then of course uh, that would be uh, that would cause a huge um, flow of city people, because at the moment the people who've left are people who are either educated and then and they don't see any prospects for themselves. That's a small minority, or people who worked with us. But there are many other city dwellers who, who think, well, I can probably live with the Taliban. Uh, but if, if there's no electricity, if, no, if there's no heating, you know, uh, Afghanistan doesn't produce electricity, enough electricity for its own needs. Electricity needs to be imported, right? Uh, Afghan uh, uh, um, uh, central bank reserves have been frozen. Uh, there's an economic collapse if they don't have the money to pay for the electricity then how do you maintain a 5 million uh, uh, inhabitant city
0: so is i mean there's obviously potential for quite a lot of leverage there when uh, the west when europe and the united states are uh, pledging very significant aid to, to afghanistan are there you know are there sufficient strings attached is there is there leverage there for uh, for, both, for, for both the for um, both the U.S. the West generally too?
1: I fear that this Western logic doesn't work with regimes like that, because the Western logic is, every government needs economic su- success, needs to provide basic services to their people, and if they can't, then they are under pressure, and we have leverage, right? But if what if your logic is. You don't want your people to uh, um, to be secure and prosperous. You want them to live close to Allah. You want them to recreate mm-hmm. a seventh-century ideological utopia. Mm-hmm. Then you don't care for the world, for their well-being, yeah. uh, and you might find foreign interference actually anathema to your project. Yeah. And and then we're in a much worse place, of course.
0: So, I mean, as we look then at the the probability, the, the strong probability of, you know, greater migrant and refugee flows from Afghanistan to, to Europe, that obviously, and I think um, the EU Home Affairs Commissioner Johansson has alluded to this um, in, in recent weeks, presents um, a very significant potential security risk the vast majority of of uh, immigrants fleeing to europe for economic reasons or indeed for for um, security refugee status will be ordinary Afghans who are simply looking for protection or a better life for themselves. But there will be those who exploit those channels. Um, so, you know, is there a need for greater screening mechanisms? Uh, what can the EU do to protect its uh, citizens and the integrity of Europe's borders in those circumstances?
1: One of the worst things that happened during the collapse of the central government and the takeover by the Taliban is that uh, prison gates were open, and some hardened criminals, mm-hmm. uh, including terrorists, uh, have escaped. And I'm told that uh, the person who blew themselves uh, who blew himself up uh, at the Kabul airport was one of those. It's often the case that people who are brutalized by, um, by torture then do uh, even more horrible things. And uh, we don't know how many uh, terrorists will, how many people of those released prisoners will continue uh, or, or become terrorists, uh, both in Afghanistan and abroad. So, so,
0: I mean, obviously, that that presents a a risk. One has to assume that this is something that um, the US administration, along with EU authorities, are concerned about. Is it likely that the counterterrorism response to the fallout from Afghanistan, will it be led by the United States, do you think? Uh, the European Union do its own thing? Uh, Will there be or is there a lot of collaboration um, between the the traditional partners? How do you see that playing out?
1: we need close collaboration between our interior ministries security services and the and the police because the key challenge is to establish people's actual identity we've already had cases of people expelled from some eu member states trying to come back as refugees and we need to share data uh, biometric data and, uh, and and police files uh, among uh, allies to eliminate such cases.
0: And I think um, I I think in fairness, particularly since the Brussels and Paris attacks and the various other uh, attacks on European soil, there has been an improvement in that sharing of intelligence and um, security data within the European Union. It has certainly improved. It's far from perfect. I mean, I suppose connected to that point then is is, um, you know, this and you've alluded to it already in our discussion, this um, uh, concept which President Biden spoke of, of over Horizon engagement and um, and intelligence gathering um, in in Afghanistan. The absence of boots on the ground. I mean, is that leaving us um, in a an unduly exposed situation where you know, the the normal intelligence gathering that would happen uh, in a country like Afghanistan really can't happen at present because of. Closure of the embassy, the withdrawal of not just military troops but also intelligence capacity.
1: It'll be harder because if you don't have uh, local contacts, if you don't have um, you know local your own local operatives, well, how do you gather the data? You can't. You can. You. I mean, uh, the European Union has kept uh, uh, an embassy, and several member states have kept them. So uh, alliance cooperation will be even 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 more important.
0: Yeah. And just another, I guess, related point, I mean, there are many in Europe, um, and you'll be uh, very privy to a lot of these conversations amongst policymakers. But there are many who, um, I suppose, for a a long time, uh, and particularly since President Trump uh, took office in 2016, who have uh, been advocating for greater strategic autonomy in Europe, greater military capacity in Europe, less reliance on the NATO relationship, le- less reliance on the U.S. relationship and the transatlantic relationship. I assume, and I think we we, we see it in the discourse, uh, that that type of rhetoric has ramped up in Europe. And, you know, you could say that uh, President von der Leyen's State Union speech Um, again sort of uh, alluded to it. Do you think that's a good idea? I mean, as a a starting point, I mean, should Europe be more autonomous? Should Europe be more independent of the United States? Or you know, should we be looking to strengthen and enhance and and maybe improve the transatlantic relationship?
1: Uh, Look, I was no fan of President Trump, but he was right when he demanded that uh, European um, uh, NATO allies spend more on the Defense. My own country, Poland, spends over two percent of GDP, but most don't. So, first of all, we should do what it takes to uh, uh, to, to do our bit uh, in the NATO framework, and NATO is absolutely the first uh, port of call and our first insurance policy. But we, you know, we are watching uh, uh, the fact that confronting China is the one thing. Uh, Literally the one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on. And the U.S. no longer has the capacity to fight two wars simultaneously. And that means that if uh, the uh, rivalry with China were to turn kinetic, and it will not be our decision, it might be China's decision then the US will devote all its political uh, and uh, economic and, uh, and military resources to that titanic struggle for, for world leadership. And will not have the bandwidth or the, or the capacity to defend Europe. So all, all we are saying, some of us, those of us who, who, who advocate strategic autonomy, is that we should have a second insurance policy. Yeah. Just in case. And these two concepts are entirely compatible. And if you don't believe me, look at the way we are spending the money. We have created a European defense budget for the first time. It's too, way too small, but, uh, but it's a good beginning. Half of it is spent on military mobility, you know, strengthening bridges, building pipelines for fuel so that NATO, if need be, could move its troops around. This is this is not only compatible with NATO; it actually is helpful to NATO. And and yes, I I am advocating creating a um, European military unit, not like the um, uh, battle groups created from national subunits, but created from volunteers from member states and. Um, paid for from the european budget and under the authority of the uh, foreign affairs uh, uh, council because there may be lower order uh, threats that the united states doesn't want to get involved in mm-hmm. and europe should do on its own you know the us doesn't ha- ask us to help them with their southern border why should they help us with our southern border
0: it sounds like almost like a coming of age for Europe finally, you know?
1: well, but I mean, there are these real threats, you know, there are these uh, warlords in Libya yeah. helped by uh, Russian uh, thugs and mercenaries mm-hmm. and people smugglers. and and you know, if they take over one of the ports and again start sending us thousands of people uh, uh, across the Mediterranean, the United States would be, I think, fully in its right to say, you are belong you Europe. Are the largest economy on earth? Can't you you have to deal with it yourself? We we, we are otherwise engaged. You know, if you get invaded by Russia, we'll be there. But there are these lower order threats that we should be capable of addressing.
0: Do you see that? I know that the EU and NATO is due to issue this uh, sort of uh, joint declaration or statement by the end of the year. Do you see this? feeding into that then so you know
1: i hope so yeah. because it's really compatible and um, and for some member states it's it would be easier to increase their defense budget if it's done in a european framework and i'm thinking of germany in particular of course of course
0: very good i mean i uh, i think uh, i think we've covered um a lot in our 35 minutes or so um radic and i really want to thank you for sharing your insights i think uh the world is changing that's for sure and it, it's really interesting to and hear not necessarily
1: for the better <laughs>
0: No, um, but your thoughts, your, your ideas in terms of how Europe can become more self-sufficient and, and can play its part, I think, is, is, is very interesting. No doubt this Afghanistan story, sadly, is going to play out for many months and years to come. So I look forward to talking to you about it again. Uh, and perhaps we might have another conversation on this podcast series in, in a few months' time. To, to...
1: I'm afraid the Taliban takeover is not the end of the crisis, but the beginning of a new one.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, we will we will convene again to to discuss it and uh, and assess where it's at. But for now, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining. My pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on and share this episode. You can find out more about fighting terror and the counter extremism project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.